Hello everyone and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and I'm the Communications Director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. Now, in the last few weeks as we've gone through different human rights issues, one of the things that we've increasingly come back to is this new very dangerous sexual ideology that's fueling extraordinarily dangerous and unhealthy attitudes across North America, and that involves uh, the consumption of pornography, uh, all pornography, but especially uh, hardcore pornography, and, and this type of porn now that's celebrating brutality and humiliation, uh, that's hate speech against women, and that is, is training men to look at women as not only objects, uh, but as the receivers of pain. And uh, last week we interviewed Lila Rose uh, about her expose of Planned Parenthood where she goes through the different types of, uh, of sex education that's being given at Planned Parenthood uh, locations and, and we heard some shocking interview footage of, of a, uh, a Planned Parenthood employee ta talking to a 15 year old girl and advising her to, to try all sorts of different things involving torture and pain inside the context of a sexual relationship with her boyfriend. In the past, uh, you know, we've aired a presentation I gave at the University of Ottawa on how porn fuels rape culture. We've talked to a former porn star and head of the Pink Cross Foundation, Shelley Lubin. And now, this week we're going to be talking to Dr. Robert Jensen of the University of uh, Texas. Now, he has quite an impressive resume in speaking out on this issue. In fact, he wrote a book called Pornography, the Production and Consumption of Inequality, which he co-authored with Gail Deans and Anne Russo. And he really portrays uh, pornography as hate speech as well. He says that you don't own porn, porn owns you. And he actually uh, gave some remarks uh, at, a, at a conference called the Heroes and Healthy Families Conference that I found really profound. He kind of goes through uh, very explicitly the, the new awful things that are found in porn, talking about how porn is the sexualizing of domination and submission, and that in pornography, women are dehumanized and portrayed simply as the objects of male pleasure, and increasingly that, that what that pleasure looks like is extreme violence and always uh, really, really awful types of, of humiliation. And what he says to men looking at porn is, think about how you feel when you've just finished using pornography. And what he says at the very end of that presentation, I think is very powerful. He said, in that moment, men, ask yourself who you are and think about who you want to be. In that moment, don't worry about whether or not you're a real man. Worry about whether you remember how to be a real human being. And I think the more we find out what's going on in this really dark underbelly of our culture that's increasingly becoming mainstream but under the radar, we have to come to the conclusion that we are very much forgetting how to be human beings as we're objectifying an entire gender and creating a very dangerous society for women to live in. So we'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Robert Jensen, who's a journalism professor at the University of Texas, a board member of the Third Coast Activist Resource Center, and Author of the most recent book is Getting Off Pornography and the End of Masculinity, which was published by South End Press in 2007. So uh, we'd like to welcome Dr. Robert Jensen to the program. If you could just tell our listeners a bit about your book, uh, Getting Off Porn and the End of Masculinity. Well, that's actually a book I, I published in 2007. Mm -hmm. There have been several since then, but it was the major book in which I tried to deal with this ongoing question of pornography, of a pornographic culture. Um, I come out of a radical feminist perspective that always saw 
the sexual exploitation of women by men, that is the buying and selling of women's bodies for men's sexual pleasure, as a fundamental component of patriarchy, that is of a system of male dominance. And so the radical feminist movement, along with a lot of other issues, focused on things like pornography, prostitution, stripping, these sexual exploitation industries, the main vehicles for that buying and selling, and tied it to a larger critique of men's violence and men's dominance in general. So that critique goes back to the 1970s. I got involved in this in the late 1980s, and it seemed at that point uh, a very compelling way to understand the world around me and my own experience. Mm -hmm. 25 years later, as this society has become increasingly pornographic, it seems to me that that radical feminist critique is more compelling than ever. Yeah, and there seems then to be to be a bit of a split because um, I know, like for example, here in Canada, there's a prominent feminist who support the legalization of prostitution as well as pornography, um, supporting the, uh, the use of pornography as part of sexual liberation. What would your response to that be then? Well, that split within feminism has been there almost from the beginning. It's not surprising in a complex world there are differences of opinions within any political movement and feminism is no different uh, I like anyone have to make commitments to what I believe is the best way to understand the world and so as a man I'm always a little hesitant to critique uh, women in feminism uh, for me it seems more important to to make clear what I feel is the best analysis and then speak to other men about this and that's how I've always seen my own role in a feminist anti-pornography movement, which was to speak to men about how the culture does present us with a certain set of rewards that are mostly short-term and very material. That is, if you accept your role as a man in patriarchy, you'll get things, you'll get certain advantages. And one of those advantages is a certain kind of access to women. But for me, the challenge to men, originally just the challenge to myself, and then as I became part of the movement, a, a broader challenge was, is that who we want to be? Is that consistent with our own moral principles and political principles? And even at a more basic level, does that kind of arrangement really make us happy? Do we feel fulfilled? And I think that's one of the ways we need to speak about this, not just to talk about these sexual exploitation industries in the way that they injure women, and they do injure women in all sorts of ways, mm -hmm. uh, but also the way that they leave us men uh, in very constrained, confined, and in the end, incredibly unfulfilling kind of, uh, kinds of roles. So mm -hmm. I think both those arguments are important. We don't need to pursue one over the other. But the effect of these sexual exploitation industries and men's violence more generally on women is pretty clear. But I think men also have to think about what it does to us as human beings. I've, I've often said that in patriarchy, in a system of male dominance, those of us who are born male, we can we can embrace masculinity and all of the traits that come with that in patriarchy, or we can be human beings, but we can't really be both because what patriarchy says it means to be a man, I think is inconsistent to a large degree with just being a decent human being. Right, and if I recall correctly, you, you said that in remarks um, uh, to, a, uh, to a conference where you said stop thinking about whether or not uh, this makes you a man and start wondering whether or not um, this makes you a human being, which I, I thought was, was very eloquently put. So what would you say then is the greatest uh, threat that porn poses to a decent masculinity, to, uh, to gender relations, as it were? Well, let's go back and remember that these injuries to women are very real. So the feminist anti-pornography movement, again, going back to the 1970s, 
identified different kinds of harms to women. One is, of course, the harm to women in the industry. And while the pornography industry would like us to believe that all the women in pornography are happy and making lots of money and enjoying themselves, the reality is is quite different, uh, much like the reality of prostitution is different than, you know, the pretty woman movie image. Mm-hmm. You know, women in the industry themselves, and especially women who've left the industry, will testify to the kind of routine levels of abuse and degradation. There are both psychological and physical consequences to this. To say that isn't to, isn't to demean women in the industry or to tell them they're dupes or whatever. It's just to recognize the reality of that. The other harm, of course, which ties in more to the question of masculinity is the effect of this on relationships in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of men and women over the years, both in formal interview situations and just informally after talks or presentations. And what's clear is that the repeated habitual use of pornography, especially the most cruel and degrading forms of pornography that present women as these degraded objects, that the habitual use of that kind of pornography by men has a direct effect on relationships. So I've heard from many men and women about how the male partner's use of pornography will distort what had perhaps prior to that been a healthy, intimate, and sexual relationship. These stories are piling up everywhere. I always say it's partly a joke, but it's actually very, very accurate, that if you want to know about the effects of repeated pornography use on heterosexual relationships in this culture, there are two kinds of people you can ask. One is marriage therapists, and the other are divorce lawyers, Mm -hmm. because these things are actually coming up as relationships disintegrate. There's a larger question of the effect of a pornography-saturated culture on levels of sexual violence. That's often reduced to the very simplistic and not very helpful question of, does pornography cause rape? Mm -hmm. Well, framed like that, of course, the answer is no. Pornography is not a sole single cause of any particular sexual assault. Human beings are far too complex for that. But I do think that there's evidence that, that should worry us about the way, not so much that pornography causes rape, but that in a pornographic culture where these images circulate so freely, where children as young as you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old can get on the Internet and see sexually, graphic sexually explicit images of men degrading women uh, and grow up with that image as a kind of quote-unquote normal image of sex. Right. It's not hard to imagine that in ways we may not be able to measure, but in ways that are very profound, it's having an effect on how we come to view sex. And how we come to view sex, of course, is a lot to do with how we come to view rape. And one of the the things about what we do know about rape from various surveys, statistics, and studies is that many women experience activity that meets the legal definition of rape and yet don't think of themselves as having been raped because the, the lines between sex and rape are so blurry in this culture. Now, that doesn't mean we can't identify when rape is rape and prosecute it, but it means that the story is far more complicated, and I find it uh, far more disturbing. Yeah, and I've I've engaged with, with a lot of high school students and university students, which is one of the reasons I've become interested in this topic. And 
Um, one of the things that, that I've sort of discovered is that, as you put it, a lot of people's first exposure to porn is, is around age 11. And rather than pornography shaping their sexuality, for many boys growing up, uh, pornography is becoming their sole point of reference for what, what sexuality is and what normal sex looks like. So there's, there's much discussion about rape culture in general, and, and uh, reviewing all of the definitions, feminist and otherwise, I can find one common element in the definitions of rape culture that say uh, that this is a culture that inherently trivializes rape. And if you look at Gil Dean's book, uh, Pornland, as well as quite a bit of the work that you've done, we see that enormous numbers of people, especially males, are consuming uh, depictions or actual events thereof of sexual assault as, as entertainment for recreation and, and for, God forbid, pleasure. Uh, do you think this would indicate that we are at a very minimum trivializing sexual assault when we choose to, to consume this as, as uh, you know, just as, as pleasure? Yeah. yeah, it's one of the many indications that in this society, even though we have laws against rape, and people make, you know, statements against rape politicians. You know, you, you won't find a politician except a few strange ducks in the Republican Party in the U.S. perhaps. But you won't find politicians who are going to endorse rape, obviously. Mm -hmm. But we do trivialize it. We trivialize it in law enforcement in the way that these cases are often investigated and prosecuted or more often not prosecuted. Mm -hmm. We see that, that long-standing social attitudes that tend to blame women for being sexually assaulted are how we trivialize it. And now we have it, as you're pointing out in this very dramatic way, in mass-mediated entertainment that's available to anyone with the click of a computer mouse. Uh, I, I find all of these developments very troubling. I don't think it's the case that, you know, we used to have this lovely culture and everybody was nice to each right. other and now things have gone down. Patriarchy, this, this notion of male dominance, especially the forms it takes in sex and violence, they've been with us for a long, long time, but things do change. And I think some of the ways that this has changed indicate that in other ways that the society has become less sexist. Women have more access to higher education. They can make more inroads in politics and government, still not at levels that are at parity, but still we've made progress on right. some of those fronts. But we've also lost ground. And I think this question of rape pornography and the trivializing of sexual violence is one of those areas where we've lost ground. And I think, in fact, that's part of the reason people have so much trouble talking about pornography. Now, I've always said that people say, well, the reason we don't talk about porn is we have trouble talking about sex. And I always say, look around at this culture. People are talking about sex all the time. Right. The reason we have a hard time talking about the reality of pornography is because what it tells us, not just about pornography, but about the whole sexual culture mm -hmm. and the way it's connected to gender and power is really quite disturbing. Uh, I know that this is not a concern only to parents, but I know that when you talk to parents where it's often a much more visceral question because they're looking at young people in their house who are having to cope with this, it's that's when you see really how afraid people are. And I think, you know, we don't want to be irrationally afraid. But sometimes fear is an appropriate response to a set of conditions that are very troubling, and I think this is one of those cases. 
Right, and, and, and kind of taking a look at, at how this has been developing, one of the things that I've, I've discovered very quickly is that uh, one of the reasons that so many men don't want to talk about porn is because they're looking at it. And yep. when you start discussing the violence in porn, and one of the, the questions that I like to pose is that if you somehow get pleasure out of watching a woman get you know, abused, humiliated, struck in the face, called really crude names, what does that say about your relationship to females? And what does that say um, about the level of misogyny that even subconsciously you obviously do hold within yourself? And, and, and I find that that makes things awkward. But I was wondering what you think about sort of manifestations of porn culture, the hypersexualizing of women. Is uh, when the Miley Cyrus twerking incident happened that, that, that was sort of infamous, what I noticed from a lot of conservative commentators who um, watched MTV, I'm sure, in hopes of finding something to be outraged about, um, there was quite a few columns that came out saying things like, you know, she sort of looks like a boy and she's not even that attractive. So the critique, I think, uh, that would have been valid saying something like, like, you know, the idea that this girl has to sexually objectify herself to sell her art is obviously culturally problematic, but instead what sort of, uh, of commentators across the board, but a number of conservative ones said, was, was not that the problem here is sexual objectification, but was that, you know, this girl didn't do a good enough job of being a sex object that came up to par. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to caricature the conservative movement because mm-hmm. I've met and worked with people with, I think, very good values. Uh, and, and as in any movement, you can find some, some pretty disgusting comments mm-hmm. all around. Well, I'm, I'm actually but, quite a conservative myself. Right. It was just here in Canada. Right, right. and I know, and, and that stuff is very disturbing. And I think there's a part of the conservative movement that is uh, extremely ugly in this way. And I think we have to mark it and, and reject it, and I agree with you on that. Uh, but even conservatives who I think express, let's just call it a, a more decent response to these kinds of questions, uh, there's also a, a divergence from a feminist analysis here because on the question of what's the solution. Mm-hmm. So the conservative position is often what we need to do is return to a a kind of patriarchal world in which men behave more responsibly. The feminist answer, of course, is we have to transcend patriarchy. So uh, I think whenever you know people of, of conscience uh, who are trying to create a world based on respect and decent human values, whenever we, we share those values, we should say it. But we should also be clear about differences in political analysis, uh, which, of course, often lead to different prescriptions for solutions to this. Uh, and I think this is actually one of the issues where conversation between conservatives, you know, often people rooted in a particular religious perspective, but not exclusively religious, mm-hmm. uh, there's a real possibility for dialogue with at least one part of the feminist movement. Now, as you pointed out, other segments of the feminist movement are celebrating pornography and calling it liberation. Mm-hmm. And the dialogue there is more difficult. But, you know, I'm always eager to engage like this on, on all of these issues. Uh, and as someone who is considers himself on the left and a radical feminist but also goes to church, right. uh, I find church spaces very, very important for this because even when there are significant differences in theology between people within a Christian community, in my case, mm-hmm. uh, there's still the common ground for dialogue. And, and that's more important than ever in a culture where with social media and lots of electronic ways, we often aren't in face-to-face dialogue. And as you pointed out, and it's very important, part of what makes that face-to-face dialogue so difficult is that men are so often using this kind of material. And the questions you are suggesting we men need to self-reflect on are very important, but they are very difficult. 
when I talk to men about this, I, I don't pretend that, you know, I'm somehow on some high and mighty throne telling people how to behave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up as a man in, you know, post-World War II America, what I always call the playboy world. And I struggled with this and to some degree still struggle, which is why I stay away from pornography of all kinds, because I feel like it takes me into a place where I don't like the person I am. Mm-hmm. Now, that's often hard conversation for men who are you know, trained to be tough and stoic and you know, not reveal emotion. But those are the kind of conversations I think we, we have to have, and I think we can have them, at least in my own life. I know I've been able to have them. Right, and one of the reasons I brought up the conservative commentators is because I'm, I'm both a Christian and a conservative myself, so when they come out saying things like that, yeah. it's even more viscerally upsetting for me. But one of the things that I think we should all be able to agree on, and I've been on a number of radio uh, stations talking about this, is that the type of pornography that's being consumed on a mass scale now that involves the degradation, the humiliation, uh, as one American porn producer put it, the future of American porn is violence. That there's some, that's something we can all agree on just as, as a baseline starting point is that this type of pornography is misogynistic and is either viewed uh, for misogynistic purposes or becomes uh, the catalyst for the development of misogynist attitudes. But in your conversations with men then, I think that men instinctively realize that what they're watching is somehow affecting the gender dynamics yeah. in their life. But how do we reach them and break them free of, of, of the addiction that so many of them have sort of become consumed by? Well, that's a great question. Um, there is, a, a, I think, a growing movement. The, the feminist anti-pornography movement that really changed our, our, the terms of debate on this in the late 70s and early 80s, that movement was largely defeated, but it's restarting itself. You mentioned Gail Dines in her book, Pornland. Mm-hmm. Gail is one of the people at the center of a group called Stop Porn Culture. Mm-hmm. And what the Stop Porn Culture folks are finding is that more and more men do want to have this conversation. They're finding that there are connections that can be made to a more conservative movement. There are younger men who don't accept either the conservative or the feminist perspective. They kind of want to be free of that. I, I don't advise that, but they do, and they're talking just about how to come together as men and, as you're pointing out, uh, talk through this. Because the one thing I've learned is that if you're a man and you're trying to disconnect from the pornographic world by yourself, if you want to go it alone, I can guarantee you you'll fail. Because these are difficult questions, and they're very hard to negotiate on our own. So we have to find these kind of spaces where, where men can talk to each other. And... The notion of porn as addiction is, I think, actually very uh, complex. I'm not sure I'm comfortable calling the use of pornography or the use of any media an addiction in terms that we typically use that for drugs and alcohol, let's mm-hmm. say. But certainly there are patterns of habitual repeated use that the people engaged in the activity can recognize is counterproductive, that it's hurting themselves, yet they're compelled to do it. Whether we call that you know, compulsion, addiction, whatever we want to call it, Uh, Men are more and more aware of this. When I first started doing work on this 25 years ago, I could be guaranteed that most men would be hostile. And what I've noticed, and Gail and I have talked about this over the years, is that because more and more men are troubled by exactly what you're describing, the sense that what they're doing is not only wrong in some political or moral sense, but is affecting the way they are able to be with a female partner, let's say, that these men are compelled now to think about this almost out of self-interest because they can feel what it's doing to them. I think that's part of the, the solution to this problem, to make spaces 
more attractive to men to talk about this, whether they're in political settings, in classroom settings, whether they're in churches, community groups, all of these places are potentially very important. And it also, of course, speaks to the need, at least in the U.S., I'm, I'm not as familiar with Canadian patterns in this, but the need to dramatically improve the kind of sex education, whether it's in the schools, in community, in church settings, because one of the things the U.S. does extremely poorly mm-hmm. is is foster this kind of open conversation about sex with the people who need it most, of course, which is younger people who are being inundated with these intensely sexualized images, not just in pornography, but everywhere we go. I mean, the the kind of the saturation of contemporary culture with intensely sexual images, I think, is not positive for anybody, including right. adults, but it's certainly especially difficult for children who are in a process of development and maturation that makes it even harder for them to know what to do with this. Yeah, one one final and very, very important question in this discussion is that what I've seen uh, talking to teens, uh, teens especially, university students as well, is that we, we have to a large degree a sort of twin socialization going on here, is that the the boys' young exposure to porn, I talked to, to, to one, one young man who saw uh, his first his first contact with sexuality was seeing a, a DVD of a violent threesome his neighbor had left in the trash. Um, I see all these girls reading Fifty Shades of Grey, and they ask questions about, like, is that kind of thing okay? So the males are, are being socialized to think that violence in sex is normal and desirable, whereas the women are being socialized to ex- to believe that they have to accept you know, some measure of pain, some measure of dominance, uh, some measure of submission within that relationship. How do we try to uh, reverse this, this socialization? I realize it's, it's sort of a broad and sweeping question, but it's the one I get asked the most. And how do, we, how do we approach this with the boys and with the girls to say that you don't have to accept this framework you've been handed? You don't have to accept anything in, in a sexual relationship and no inflicting pain on your partner um, is not something that you should be you should be glorifying. Yeah, how do we have those conversations? You know, the answer is we just keep trying to have them. I don't I don't think there's a magic bullet or a you know one curriculum that will solve all these problems. And I also think it's important to think of them in the context of a, a, a what I'll call a larger problem of the corrosion of this culture, uh, the the routine glorification of violence in non-sexual situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, what I would call the kind of over-mediation, the way that not only young people, but you know, all too many of us are, are connected to screens, the way that our, our realities are so much defined by screens. These are all part of the, the bigger question, I think. And you know, it requires stopping and, and asking what I think is a simple question. And the, the older I get, the more it's the question that's on my mind, mm-hmm. is how do we form stable, decent human communities? Right, And I think the sad part is when we think about it, many of us will we'll have to admit we don't really live in stable, decent human communities. Right, we, do, we don't live in communities where we can routinely trust other people. We don't live in communities where the basic kind of respect that you should be according other people is, is, can be taken for granted. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. From my own point of view, it's the intense affluence materialism and, and, and kind of greed-based culture we live in, given our economic system. A lot of it's about the hubris of in the United States of thinking the United States is the greatest country that's ever been. A lot of it has to do with these questions of gender. There are still deeply entrenched problems around race and racism and white supremacy. All of these 
are in some sense part of the same problem that impedes us from forming these decent, stable human communities. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of times people say, well, you sound very conservative. I thought you were a radical. And to me, that may be the most radical question we can ask, right. is what is keeping us from those decent, stable human communities? And and I think there's a lot of room for people to, to share ideas about that. There's not one answer to it. There's just a need for people to start recognizing that cultural corrosiveness and being willing to talk about it. Dr. Robert Jensen, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. Great conversation. I appreciate the, the questions. All right. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Robert Jensen of the University of Texas, author of the recent book, Getting Off, Pornography and the End of Masculinity. I think you'll agree with me. Uh, when you say that the information he's shared with us is, is really, really important to consider. I've talked to a lot of guys addicted to porn or guys who have had a porn problem in the past, uh, guys who have shared with me how difficult it was to break this habit once they'd started engaging in it. And even worse, I've talked to many, many, many girls who have suffered uh, from sexual aggression from males as the result of male porn addiction, guys who have tried to push girls into doing increasingly strange and, and, and depraved sexual behaviors based on, on imitation, based on imitating pornography, which our culture now consumes on a scale that we've never seen before. So i just like to commend this message to you and, and ask you to do you think about this, to share this with your friends. And start to think about what we can do uh, to protect the human rights of girls and women in our community. And I would propose to you that one of the ways we can fight misogyny, that we can fight sex trafficking, that we can fight the objectification of women, is to stop looking at pornography ourselves and encourage all those around us to stop looking at pornography as well. My name is Jonathan Van Maren. This is The Bridgehead. Thanks for listening.